Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a great episode with Greg Krogh of Mogollon Rim Outfitters. And uh, Greg and his guides last year, his hunters in, in Nevada shot five bucks over 200 inches. We're talking about mule deer. Today we're going to be talking about the, the restricted rifle deer non-resident uh, deer draw that you have to go through a guide or through an outfitter, but your your odds of drawing are about twice as good, albeit they're not great odds. They are better if you apply with a guide, and we're going to go over how you do that here with Greg, and we're also going to break down a bunch of different units in Nevada, uh, talking about the early rifle hunts, the mid-rifle hunts, and the late rifle hunts, and how to put in for the guide draw and all the ins and outs uh, of that. Uh, before we get to that, I want to thank GoHunt.com uh, Insider for their sponsorship of, of this uh, podcast. And I want to show you where the value of the Insider is. And if I take one unit that Greg, one particular unit, just to give you an idea, units 131 to 134, the, the early October deer hunt uh, that, that Greg is in Greg's top five, if you look at um, the tags drawn last year no tags were drawn in the zero points so someone with no points no one drew last year but if you look at uh the amount of people non-residents with with one bonus point two drew in 2016 and three drew in 2015 if you look at the amount of people that drew in 2016 with two points there's four people that drew in 2016 one person that drew in 2015 if you look at the amount of people that drew with three points, one person drew in 2016 and no people drew in 2015. Uh, there were uh, 14 going back to, there were 16 people in 15 with zero points that applied and none of them drew. There were 16 people in, 16, in 2016 that applied and none of those drew. But if you go to the one point, in 2015, 20 people put in, three of those drew. In 2016, 14 people put in, and two of those drew. As well as if you bump up to two points, uh, in 2015, nine people applied, one person drew. In 2016, eight people applied, and four of those drew. And so uh, with two points in 2016, it was a 29% draw, uh, and and in 2015, it was a 9.4% draw. And if you're a Go Hunt Insider member, all you do is click, and you can go through each hunt early, the middle hunt, the late hunt for every unit, and you can see the draw odds from year to year. Uh, you can see the amount of applications that were for that hunt and how many points they had. And then you can see how many tags on that hunt were drawn. And uh, it also shows you average quality of bucks, trophy potential, harvest success uh, in each unit. Uh, and it shows you the applications and tag allocation. So it's a great way to research these units and figure out what is your best chance with the amount of points you have. Uh, if you're not already an insider member, all you have to do is go to gohunt.com forward slash insider, 
click on the blue join now button uh, when you go to uh, enter uh, uh, as a member when you sign up use the j scott promo code and you're going to get a 50 dollars kuyu gift card and that's just for signing up that will also allow you full access on the insider portion of the website that gives you access to the strategy articles and basically these charts it will walk you through series of these charts so that you can become very versed at looking at where you stand with how many points you have and how you know where you stand as far as how many other people are in your boat how many people are behind you in front of you and you can start calculating your best chance to draw a tag i want to thank go hunt dot com insider lorenzo sartini and chris porter brady miller and their crew uh over there for doing such an awesome job and uh, having these incredibly accurate uh draw odds and i think nevada is one of these states that you can really use these accurate draw odds uh and not only do they have them broke down in this guide draw uh, but they have the general draws as well with the resident and the non-resident and these are the most accurate draw odds uh, on the market today i want to thank my other sponsors uh, kuyu.com uh, jason harrison and his crew uh, make unbelievable ultralight hunting gear uh, phonescope.com uh, by the way, let me back up. Kuyu, uh, we're going to be announcing here uh, shortly some uh, s- some benefits uh, for you guys using a promo code with Kuyu. So stay tuned for that. I want to thank Cheston Davis and his crew in uh, Beaver, Utah at phonescope.com. Uh, they make uh, digiscoping adapters. They can take any binocular, any spotting scope, and adapt that to any phone. You can be taking photos and videos uh, right away. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket science, scientist to figure it out. It's it's a great adapter, and you can be taking really good 4K video in no time. Uh, use the J. Scott promo code, J. Scott 16 promo code, I'm sorry, and you will get a, a 10% off discount. Also, the Optics Authority, the Outdoorsman's, Cody Nelson and his crew in Phoenix, Arizona. If you use the J. Scott promo code uh, when purchasing at Outdoorsman's.com or by calling on the phone or going into the shop, uh, their phone number is 1-800-291-8065. Guys, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast. I want to thank the sponsors. Let's get right to this episode with Greg Krogh. And don't forget the deadline for the guide portion of the draw is March 10th, 2017. And uh, uh, Greg's information is mogionrimoutfitters.com. You can listen through the podcast and also uh, hear how to get a hold of him and how to go through the the, the uh, guide draw process and there still is time just get a hold of greg and and listen to the podcast and you'll know what to do so uh guys thanks for all your support let's get right to it welcome to the j scott outdoors podcast i am in chino valley arizona at the home of greg krogh of mogion rim outfitters and we're going to be talking about the restricted deer non-resident uh draw in nevada with Greg Krogh here, one of the best outfitters in Nevada, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation to break down the guided deer draw, but first, how you doing? Good, how you doing? Good, it's uh, great to be up here, um, you know, coming up as soon as, you know, as soon as I got out of town there in Phoenix, just the whole way uh, until I got up kind of on the plateau, just green as can be, 
and obviously tons of moisture around here. I see snow on all the mountains around. Um, obviously it's still too cold at night probably to start growing much green feed, although I see a little bit out in your pasture starting to grow. Um, what are you thinking about this year as far as moisture here? Man, I think it's going to be phenomenal. We, we had, we keep getting these big storms and then it warms up for two weeks and kind of gets enough to where the grass starts to come up and then it dumps again. And I can't remember it ever having this much moisture at my place in the last 10 years. Yeah. Going back 10 years, I certainly can't. So. You know, it's it's makes me feel real optimistic, not only about uh, our antler growth here in Arizona, but, uh, you know, from what I hear, Nevada's also been getting good storms. Yeah, they're, they're having a really good winter this year, which we haven't had in quite a while. And uh, we've been saved the last five or six years. We've been in very drought conditions over in Nevada, but we've been saved by late spring rains that have been helping us get through and having us good antler growth years. But but it hasn't been helping all the springs and groundwater and everything else. And this year they're having a lot of really good snowpack that they haven't had in a long time. What in your mind, like in relation to the deer and elk antler, speaking specifically about Nevada, having a good winter moisture. And then if we have any of those spring and then, you know, summer type uh, green ups, you know, going into having a good winter, how important is that for antler growth in your mind? Well, it's uh, Nevada, the, specifically the areas that I hunt, which are kind of southern and, and uh, southeastern or central eastern Nevada, they're not, uh, a lot of those are more high desert units, so we don't have like a winter kill. So snow kill, snowpack's not going to end up killing deer in the units that I'm hunting. Um, so any kind of snowpack I think is really good. If you're not, if you get a really good snowpack like we're getting this year over there and really good winter rains, then you're going to have at least an average antler growth year. Um, if you, but I think for optimum growth, the most important is the May rains, late April and May rains, because even on a wet year like this, we're going to need something in April, May, which we've been getting for six consecutive years now, or five of the last six years. So if we can get a good winter, they come out of it. And, you know, as long as it isn't a really brutal cold winter that they come out in poor shape, I think that does affect them negatively, but it hasn't been like that. Specifically these desert units, even when it snows over there, it melts off right away. And, and, you know, they're not, it's not like they're in Colorado up to their bellies and snow yeah. and can't get away. So I think this year right now, we're going to be for sure going to have at least a, an average or above average antler growth year. If we end up getting the kind of April and May rains we've had in the past, it could be just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it, the optimism across the board from everyone I'm talking to is, you know, it's one of those things. If you have a wet winter, like you said, the, probably the worst thing you're going to have is average. And then anything after this is a huge bonus. Right. You know, early monsoons here in Arizona, that could be huge for Arizona growth. Right. Um, Greg, you've done a, a phenomenal job for many, many years with your deer hunts uh, in Nevada. For those listeners that haven't heard you on my podcast before or are not familiar with you, how many years have you been guiding in Nevada? Um, I think I've been in Nevada since uh, probably 22 years over there. I was over here for about 10 years, and then I picked up Nevada because there was nothing going on over in Arizona in October. So I, I think I went over there for the first time in 95. 95. So you've been over there a long time. What have you seen as far as, have you seen trophy quality change? Have you seen hunting pressure? Have you seen, you know, what changes have you seen to the good or to the bad in 22 years? You know, the tags, it, it's it's obviously much harder to draw now because it, the secret's gotten out about Nevada. You know, back when I started over there, we were drawing 100% of our clients or 95% of the people. And now with 
um, it's much easier to apply. There's lots of places that are applying for people. So it's made the draw to get much more difficult, but it hasn't really affect pressure in the field because it's still the same basic types of numbers. So I haven't really noticed anything different as far as the hunting quality, as far as people being in the field, that hasn't really changed. I've just noticed it's a lot harder to get drawn, you know, back, you know, way back when we were drawn 95%, you could pretty much pick the people and you knew who was coming every year. We hunted with the same people every year. Whereas now it's, you have to apply a lot more people just to get enough hunters to, to make it, uh, to make it effective. So I would say the biggest thing is just a much more difficult draw. And that's where this guided draw really helps out. It, it gives you increased odds of drawing. They have a regular draw that takes place in April that anybody, any non-resident can apply for, or you can choose to put in for the guide draw, which is where they set aside a certain number of tags just for us as guides. And you're only competing against other guides that are applying for these tags with their clients. So it's a, there's, there's less tags available to us, but there's also quite a few less applicants. So their odds are considerably better. I I did a lot of research on it just yesterday and you know, on the units that I'm hunting the, on the worst case scenario, the odds are twice as good. And there were some units that I looked at where they were four and five times as good. So in other words, what you're saying is if anybody's planning to apply in Nevada, or if you've been applying in Nevada and you are planning to go with a guide, mm-hmm. you're absolutely crazy not to put in for the guide draw because you're already planning to go with a guide. Right. So if you drew in the general draw and you're going with a guide, you will double your chances in essence of if you drawn. put in in the guide draw. Yeah, and it's and I'm not saying it's great draws. It, they aren't these aren't these are premium units and really good hunts so they are difficult draws, but they are at minimum twice as good in right. some units and up to four and five times as good. So if you're planning on using a guide, yeah, in my opinion to be crazy not to the the disadvantage to the guide draw is you have to go with the guide you applied with and you can't do the hunt on your own. Right. So, but if as long as you know you're going to hire a guide anyway, right there's no point in not putting it in on the guide draw. Right. Um, several reasons. The application process is a lot quicker. I think they're due on the 10th and we usually know within two weeks, the results. Oh really? So I think they're due on March 10th and I, I don't have it in front of me. I guess I could look it up when the drawing is going to be. So in other words, you can start, if, if a guy draws, you can start planning your hunt very quickly. You'll know the results for the guide draw before the regular draw is even open for the elk draw. Okay, so we just looked it up. Uh, Greg looked it up here. And so you, uh, the deadline is March 10th, and by March 22nd, the guide draw is completed. That's correct. They give us the results on the in person at a drawing on the 22nd of March. And one thing I was asking you there at the break is if you apply in this guide draw and you don't draw, you can't apply in the general draw. That's so correct. once the, you apply, you have to decide whether you're going to apply in the general draw or the guide draw. That is correct. And then restricted, and one other thing, remember the restricted draw is only for rifle deer. The guide draw is rifle deer only. If you apply for that, you cannot apply for any deer in the regular draw. You have to pick one or the other. Um, in the past, years ago, it used to be able you could do both and you could double dip. It was really nice, but they've got onto that and yeah. that's no longer allowed. Um, but you can apply in the regular draw uh, for, I believe, like the Silver State tags and those types of things for deer on the regular draw. And, um, and the reason I know that is somebody applied and didn't draw a couple of years ago, and that was the only thing they could apply, and he applied and he drew the Silver State, which is basically the governor's tag. Uh, a good friend of mine did. But uh, you can apply for elk on the regular draw. Okay. Okay, and this restricted uh, rifle deer draw, it's just for deer. They don't offer this for elk. That's correct, just for deer. And in order for, we're going to get into the units that you hunt and some of the 
uh, past successes that you've had in order to, well, what is the process in the guide draw? I guess I should ask. How does Uh, it work? The way it works is they, they send us out a power of attorney form specific to this draw. It's only good for this draw. And what it does is it gives me power of attorney to apply them for this draw only. It doesn't give me power of attorney for anything else. Right. Just, uh, restricted to this draw. I send out that email, then they print it out, have it notarized and signed, and then they mail it back to me. As soon as I get it back, then I contact them and we go over the draw and do it together. Good. And then obviously deadline by March 10th. Um, This podcast, we're doing this on March 1st. I'm going to turn this around tonight. So there's going to be plenty of time uh, for people to hear this. Email them the form. Right. They get it signed and notarized, and if they express mail it or just priority mail it, I'll have it back. And as long as I get it back by next Thursday, so by the 9th, that gives me time to apply them. Good. And then a quick turnaround. That's always nice because guys are trying to plan hunts and stuff. They'll know in 12 days if they draw. They know in 12 days whether they drew or did not draw. Gotcha. Let's talk specifically, uh, before we get into the units, let's talk about uh, the year that you had last year. Um, how, how did it stack up maybe to, to other years and what were some of what you would call some of the, your successes in, in the hunts last year? You know, last year was, in my opinion, the best year we've ever had in Nevada. Um, on the, on the general, specifically on the rifle hunts. Um, I think last year we ended up taking five bucks over 200 inches total in Nevada. And I think we took a total of 17 or 18 people over a, you know, that's six different hunts. We're not, right. People see that in, you know, or they saw that we drew 15 people last year, 14 people in the guide draw, and they're picturing a camp of 14 people. These are, we're, we're playing for five different hunts that all have different dates. So we, right. we never had a rifle hunt last year. Um, I don't believe we ever had a rifle hunt with more than two hunters in camp. Um, there was a non-hunter, you know, like somebody yeah. brought their dad. Yeah. But we never had more than two hunters in camp last year, and most of the camps were one hunter, or uh, the majority of them were one hunter. So it, it's a it's a very small personalized camps, and um, you know, last year I would say, even though we had some of our best success as far as quality deer we took, it was some of the hardest hunting that I can remember. It was none of these hunts were. I don't want to portray. Why? This, we just had we had an unbelievable pinion nut crop last year, uh, a pine nut crop. And a lot of the deer that we knew about that we were planning on hunting just disappeared. And they get in that thick pinion, and it was pretty tough hunts. And uh, But everybody, we had a great group of guys. Everybody grinded it out. And in the end, we ended up killing. Um, our average last year was probably the best we've ever had. Um, our success rate was probably the best we've ever had. And, but it was tough hunting. You know, there yeah. were other years. The only other year that was comparable was probably 2010 or 11. And that year, it just seemed like it was easy. I mean, we just, we, we knew about eight or nine different bucks. We'd go look for that one, found him and shot him. Last year, it was six or seven days of grinding for each buck that we ended up killing. So, but in the end, it was, I think, our best year we ever had. Do you think sometimes, um, I mean, I've seen it a lot. Do you think sometimes guys, draw these tags either and i'm talking in general terms here they draw these tags or they put in in a guided draw and you know they're go i've had guys go well i'm going with you jay i mean this is like going to be a slam dunk and i'm like yeah you've seen too many of the highlight reels i just curious from your perspective uh how you see guys like you're going to give them a great hunt and five bucks over 200 inches is phenomenal but 
but that's that, not the norm. That's not doesn't happen to everybody. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on expectations and how do you manage that? Because I know as an outfitter and a guide myself, I have to explain to people sometimes. Listen, you got 24 points and you just drew an elk tag, or you got you know these points. Just because you have these a huge amount of points and you've waited 24 years does not mean you get a buck over 220 or does not mean you get a 400-inch bull or a 180-inch ram. It just means you drew that tag. It just means you drew a tag, which gives you the best opportunity at that, but it's still tough. You know, I, I tell people, as far as expectations, everybody that I've been talking to about this, they're asking us what we shot last year, and we're very quick to point out that was not a normal year. We're not going to shoot 30% of our bucks over 200 ever. Probably never again. Probably never happen again. You'll try to. Yes. But and we'll try just as hard and we'll do just as much scouting and everything else will be the same. But last year we caught a lot of breaks. I mean, it was, we, um, we just, it just seemed like we, we just, we caught a lot of breaks. You know, we, a couple guys made some unbelievable shots that I didn't think they would be able to make and they made it under pressure situations. Um, we, in, Actually, last year we had a couple of really big bucks get missed. We had three or four really big bucks get missed last year, and you know nothing—not chip shots or anything. But it, it, I just think that the biggest thing is just because you draw these tags is like what you said. It doesn't mean you're going to kill a giant buck. It means you're going to have an opportunity to be in an area where there's a giant buck. Right. And and I think so many people make the mistake of putting so much pressure on the hunt when they draw it. And I'm in, I include myself. I've drawn two or three premium tags in the last 20 years. And the first two I drew, I didn't even really enjoy the hunt. It took away from the enjoyment because I put so much pressure on having to be successful because I waited so long to get this tag that even when I got the buck I was looking for, I don't look back on that hunt and have a really good memory of it. Right. Cause I was so stressed out about it. And I was afraid of what people were going to think if I didn't get a big buck. Cause I drew this tag that the last time I drew a premium tag was on the Arizona strip. And I went into it, going into it, I remember talking to my buddy who had the tag with me, uh, Pat Losher, that I'm going to have fun no matter what. And I don't care if we don't see a buck, I'm going to this one to have fun. And I, ironically, I didn't get the buck that I was trying to kill on that particular hunt. The other two I did, got the specific deer I was trying to kill and didn't have a fun hunt. This one, we hunted our butts off for 10 days and never got the buck we were trying to kill and ended up shooting a backup buck. And it's by far the funnest hunt I've ever had in my life. When I look back on that hunt, I can't think of anything but positive memories. And I see a lot of that now in these hunts that, you know, last year was a great example of guys that had the right attitude. You know, I'm looking, like thinking back on it, there were a couple of different guys. I don't know, am I allowed to mention names or right, not? But say whatever you there, want. There was, a, <laughs> there was a young, I call him a kid, he's 20, you know, or 21, but Louis, uh, Louis Polish's son, uh, Tony and, and he drew a tag and he had a 231 tag. And I can remember for the first five, six days of his hunt, I could not turn him the buck we were looking for. And we were trying our hardest, you know, we were up there an hour in the dark and, and, uh, just could not turn the buck. And this was a buck we were regularly seeing leading up to the hunt. And he just kept this positive attitude and I kept apologizing to him, telling him, I can't believe this is how bad this is. And we were hunting a buck in a low density area. So we weren't seeing very many deer. I mean, we were seeing, seven or eight deer a day and the same seven or eight and not the buck we were looking for. And he just kept being positive and saying, you know, gosh, you know, it doesn't matter. I know that any time we turn these glasses, he might be standing in front of that juniper and we're going to shoot him. And, and, uh, he grinded it out. And I remember on six, six and a half days into his hunt, we didn't have an opportunity to big buck. And, and then on the last afternoon, it all worked out and he ended up killing the, probably the biggest buck. Well, hopefully he kills a bigger one, but there's a good chance <laughs> it'll be the biggest buck he ever kills in his life. And, uh, and uh how big was it it was a 205 typical you know just a beautiful buck and 
And, See, I uh, love those stories because here's a guy that, you know, he put in for the, 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 the draw, whether it was guided or whether it was in the general draw, and then he hired you, he paid his money to you, and, you know, you're getting knocked around, beat around, not seeing many deer. But that's the thing that I, I just, you know, you can't stress enough to people that this is how those hunts are. We're hunting in Nevada. We're yep. hunting in Arizona. There's not lots of animals. We're yep. up looking at big, vast amounts of country, and you have an opportunity to kill one of those because you have a tag in that unit. But it doesn't mean you're going to come home with one. Right. And, and, oh, you've paid the guide fee. So what? So is the other guy. So, it, you know, it's yep. like it's still a grind. And I think one of the things that people see is they see your successes. They see our successes and they put us up on a pedestal of, you know, these guys can find anything anywhere. And maybe sometimes we can. And a lot of times that's the truth. But then there's just times when the hunting is tough. I can't think of hardly any hunts that I've gone on. And I'm curious your feedback, like where it was just easy. Like rarely is it easy. Like maybe a couple where it's just like, oh, yep, it's it's a gimme. It might've been because of the time that was put in ahead of time and it all worked out on opening yeah. day, but it's very rarely just go out there and look for a big buck and find one. And it, and it, you know, Jason Schillinger hunted with us this year. He killed a big buck with us a few years back. And, you know, he had the same tag the week before this, uh, uh, Tony did. And, you know, we hunted that buck for six days and never saw him. And, you know, we didn't see, we saw a couple of good, you know, mature bucks, nothing great, but we're hunting one specific deer. And, you know, I've heard from two or three people, including him, that what a blast he had. Because we still, you know, we had video of the buck. We had taken pictures and film of the buck all summer. That needs to be what you're focused on. You're in an area hunting a buck that you might see. And it didn't work out for him, but it worked out for the guy the next week. And there were several guys. And every single person we took this year, specifically the guys that shot the big bucks, all of them had rough hunts. And, but then in the end, they ended up getting a really good buck. And uh, with the exception, there was one guy that shot a really big buck on opening morning of his hunt. I, I think to be a trophy hunter, and I think specifically to be a mule deer hunter, and I've only shot a handful of, you know, good bucks, um, you kind of have to like suffering. Yeah. <laughs> and I just don't think a lot of people, until they do it, they realize that, you know, they're like, Greg, how'd your season go? And if they spent every single day with you, they'd realize the amount of suffering, especially in Nevada where it's it's lower density and it can be the weather can be weird and finicky and hot and dry and this and that and the other. And you kind of got to just like the process and you kind of have to like suffering knowing that your time may come or it may not. It, but if you keep a good attitude, that's the best opportunity and chance you have at killing a big buck. I- I think that's why I like mule deer is because they are so difficult. It makes it so exciting when you finally kill that 200 inch deer that, you know, I've had lots of people come up to me and say, you know, when I shoot, I lose my mind, you know, when I walk up on a 200 inch deer because I've had multiple people say to me, gosh, you act like you've never seen one before. And I tell them, I said, it's more like, I know how hard it is that I keep thinking this might be the last one I ever walk up on. And they, you know, killing a really good mule deer the reason it's so the reason I love hunting them is they're so difficult that that uh, you go so much time in between shooting really big deer that when it finally happens it makes it that much more rewarding and I don't I wouldn't I don't know if I agree that I like the suffering because because uh, <laughs> it, it there is a lot of suffering when you're hunting big deer but I I would say all the suffering makes that that much more rewarding when you finally do get one on the ground that's that kind of a buck and so many people don't 
There's just so many. If you look at the the really good mule deer guys out there, they're consistently killing big bucks. You know, the Campbells, Brittinghams, Ulmers, uh, you know, Jason Carter, those types of guys yeah. that are doing it. People don't realize how much time they're putting in. And, and that's and, another huge factor. You know, they're putting in a lot of time. And, 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 you know, and I don't mean this as a negative to them. I just mean, you're not, you don't write a story about the hunt. You went for a week and didn't see a good buck. And, right. and uh, I've had a lot of good laughs with like Jason Carr over the years. It, it's, you know, it seems like as much time we put in, in some of these places in Nevada, I feel like people, if people really knew how much time it took to kill a buck like that, yeah. that, that, uh, I'm not even sure they would want to go try it, you know? Yeah. And, and, but, but I think that's what makes it so neat when it found, like you said, when it finally does work out and you get to walk up on one of those bucks and it's, it's pretty awesome. And if it was someplace in a field or whatever, I don't think I would enjoy it as much, you know? And, yeah. uh, but I, I just think that the biggest thing like you focused on is being positive. If, cause we're going to try every bit as hard. We're going to do just as much scouting and the outcome is going to be decided by fate, you know? Yeah. And if you have a positive attitude, you can look at all the other things that happened on that hunt and and have a good time at least and then if it works out then at least you had a great time leading up to it and you got your giant buck but if you're negative or or if you're focused on the fact that you're not it's not working out you're not finding that big buck then even when you do finally get done at the very end you're not going to have a bunch of great memories in the back of, of leading up to that and i think that if most you know i try to do that on every hunt i do for myself now on personal hunts or with my kids you know, I, I try to, uh, I try to have a great time and not worry about it, you know, and it's hard with kids cause I'm afraid they're not going to get one. And like right. with my girls and we do hunts, but I, my best memories are of my hunts are usually not the actual getting of the elk with my daughter for, it was all the stuff we did leading up yeah. to it and how much fun letting it them was. drive the truck and oh, doing all yeah. that stuff, and, you know, and like this past year we did a hunt with the girls and, you know, one of the girls sh- shot a, a bull early on and, you know, Adam Foss, showed me a trick I'd never seen before where he cooked the steaks on a flat rock, you know, and I'd never seen that before. And, uh, I can't, I'm never going to have another hunt where I don't do it now. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, he grilled them up and put some seasoning on some, we were backpacked on some top ramen packets and my girls to this day still talk about it, you know, and I can hear them talking about what their friends about at the back seat when we we're driving about how they had these steaks cooked on a rock, you know. Tell me about that. Did he just build a fire and put a flat rock in it and heat it up to a certain temperature or walk me through that? Yeah, he just, we, we had a big fire pit ring and we were eight miles in. We went in with mules and, and, uh, but I didn't, I was planning on doing backpacking food to go light because we had a lot of camera equipment they were filming. And so we were trying to go really light. I didn't have a grill or anything. And one of my daughters, uh, shot her first bowl and, and we had, you know, we took out the back straps and the loins and he told me he was going to cook them for dinner. So we didn't have to have backpacking food. And I said, well, I didn't bring a grill. And he said, oh, I'll show you a trick. And he basically built this fire and then when it got really a big bed of coals, he just took out one of the rocks on the side of the fire pit ring and he went and got a flat rock that was, you know, kind of like an, almost like a paver or something, you know, uh, um, like, and it was about maybe three inches. Like thick. a sandstone kind yeah. of like rock. And it was, you know, it looked like a, maybe a foot long and a 10 inches wide, about three or four inches thick. And he just, he started off by setting the rock right in the coals while the fire was going and got it really hot to begin with. Then he just grabbed the rock and laid it across like a little bridge, and then he shoveled some coals on it. So the rock was already really hot, and uh, he just carved up some steaks and threw them on there. And it was, I can't remember because he told me two and a half minutes to, he cooked the first couple batches, and 
he was telling me that he was cooking them for two and a half minutes, and I like stuff rare, and I didn't believe that it could really cook it that fast, so I did it for three, and it, that batch was like leather. I mean, it cooks them fast, you know, and it was two and a half minutes to a side. And So literally, they're sizzling on that oh, rock. Oh, yeah. It's, they're, it, it sounds like they're on a, you know, a grill. Uh, That's you cool. Know, and it, it was unbelievable. And But those are things you remember my, even my more than – My kids still the, talk about yeah. it, you know, and, and, uh, and I, don't get me wrong. It was fun when they got their elk, and there was a lot of great memories there too, but – we had a rough hunt, you know, we were in an area that didn't have a lot of elk. It's an easy unit to draw. And we only saw, I think we saw three bulls total in five days with six people glassing. And we shot two of the three that we saw. And, and, uh, so, but we had a blast with all the jokes and, and, you know, goofing around with the kids and out, you know, and and all the hiking and some of the scenery they saw. So by focusing on all that, you're still going to, I'm not saying you'd have to quit trying, try just as hard, but try to enjoy all the other things on the hunt also, because it may not work out and you may not see that giant buck, but at least you'll have other great memories, you know, and my daughter ended up getting an elk at the very end, but had she not, she still would have had all those other memories of her sister's bull and, you know, and, you know, helping her sister skin her bull and all that kind of stuff. So I think if guys, I just think the biggest thing is don't put such high expectations when you draw these tags and just Look at them as what they are, an opportunity to be in an area that has a big buck. And that's what makes it so difficult. But you still have to go find that big buck. And for sure, it can be tough. As far as giving advice to uh, rifle hunters that are coming out to do this hunt, you know, we're talking about the restricted rifle draw here. I mean, I've seen it a lot where hunters, they want big bucks. You know, there's like, oh, I want one over 200. And then they show up and they're fat and out of shape. Like, what would you tell people the best thing that they can do, even if they are overweight? Like, what do you tell people and one, what do you normally see? I mean, a lot of times they don't do anything. Well, one, just be honest up front on what you can do because some of the units are different. Some are real physical, some are don't. So if a guy isn't in the best shape, that's not the end of the world. But let us know so we can put you in for a unit that isn't as difficult. Even if that means your odds aren't as there aren't as many big bucks in that unit, you're better off to be in a unit that doesn't have as many big bucks that you yourself can get around and hunt in. There's still a chance. Whereas if putting into a unit that's extremely physical where the hike is something that's very difficult and you're not even going to be able to do it anyway. Um, so just be honest with what your condition is to begin with, number one. And then number two, get in the best possible shape you can leading up to the hunt because it not only will it help the – outcome of the hunt it'll also help with the enjoyment of the hunt if you're miserable i mean i'm sure you've gotten ready for a hunt before and you know i've had hunts that i wasn't in shape mm-hmm. that i you know i mean i'm i'm not in bad i just mean i didn't maybe run a bunch or do something when i knew it was going to be a physical hunt and i still did everything i needed to do but i was miserable yeah. because i hadn't been and then there's other hunt like i'm thinking back like on bear hunts you know where it's really physical uh, fall bear hunts and then there were years where i ran five miles every day leading up to the hunt. And then I enjoyed the hike up and to go after these bears and I enjoyed the hike out and it made the hunt more enjoyable when I was on the hunt. So it's not only will it help your outcome, it'll, it'll make the hunt a lot more pleasurable if you're not dying the whole time. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely being prepared, getting your feet prepared and, um, wearing boots that you're going to wear on the hunt, not, you know, and wearing them a lot so that your feet are in, cause if your feet are in bad shape, everything goes, that starts there. And if your feet are hurting during a hunt, they're, there's really not much you can do once it starts. How many days would you say you're in the field between all your hunts, between Arizona and Nevada, if you had to guess? You know, between starting around the 4th of July until the end of January, I might have 10 days off total. So just short of six months. And what boots have you found over the years 
um, that work best for your feet? <clears throat> Me, per, I'm not probably a good. I have um, I have pretty strong ankles, so I'm not somebody. A lot of people make fun of me because I don't wear. A lot of people have really high tech boots, and I wear a lot of Solomon lightweight hikers. And uh, until the weather goes bad, I'll, I would prefer to wear a pair of Solomon with no ankle support at all, real lightweight shoes. I get a lot of people make fun of me in the pictures. They think I'm wearing tennis shoes, and I like really lightweight. Uh, footwear but once the weather turns bad obviously you can't do that so when the weather goes bad um you know in the past i've worn kenetrek i like those um and um i actually like a danner boot i'm not a real picky foot person though i, I wear so your a feet are pretty tough right now they're not waterproof and and warm and um you know i hunt in arizona nevada and we really don't have the kind of conditions yeah. that a lot of places have. You know, you look at – I think last year in Arizona, I hunted in the snow one time, and that was on the late elk hunt. It snowed for one day, and the next day it was all gone. Yeah. So we don't really have those kind of extreme conditions. I want something that's – I go for more lightweight and comfortable. Um, you know, for the late season, obviously, they got to be waterproof and warm, but I'm not – I'm really not all that particular. Most of the hunts I do in Nevada, the temperatures are pretty mild. I'm, like I said, lightweight hikers. We are going to get into these units, I promise, but I, I've got I've got uh, him here captive. Do you want to get another water? Are you good? I'm good. I have recently switched to the twin spotter, um, Swarovski twin, mm-hmm. uh, 65 millimeter. I got that um, jig from uh, uh, Benny Wells here yeah, in yeah. Prescott, and I just absolutely love them. One thing I found that was a game changer for me is I've taken the eye cups off. Right. And I used to have an old pair of doctors before I got the Koas and cut the rubber off. So my eye was actually right up against the lens on the doctor. Mm -hmm. And on these twin spotters, for me, I looked through Benny's pair of 65s up here, just right here um, out of town, right here where we're sitting. And when I got my pair, I, I unscrewed the eye cups and it made a world of difference for me as far as field of view. And Mm -hmm. I love them. I spent 17 days now in Mexico using them. And one of the things that I like about it is a weight savings as far as, you know, with, with the, 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 the adapter and the twin spotters, I'm at seven and a half pounds, the COAs you know, or whatever they were, 15 pounds or whatever they are. And then you have to carry a big tripod. I like the fact that these twin spotters, I could just use my normal little tripod. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a huge weight savings for me. I know you've tried every big binocular under the sun. I'm just curious where, where are you at now? What have you tried and kind of where, where have you gravitated towards now? You know, I've gone back and forth. I, I, Right now, I'm currently using the doctors. and The, the new and the, ones? The new HD ones. Okay. And they've got a much bigger ocular on the front than what they used to. Because I used to do the same thing you did. On the old pair, I cut right. the rubber off, and that gained you. It was, it was, a, it was substantial when you cut the rubber off. It was a huge off. difference, like game changer. Yeah. And I do know that I would say the new ones are 40% better than the old ones. I had the old doctors for for. 15 or 16 years were I, they the 40 wide angle 40 wide angle okay that's what i had the 40 wide angle. i had the 40 wide angle old ones with the, the, the lenses were kind of concave and when yeah. you once you pulled the rubber off like they yeah. were really good in the centers but on the edges mm-hmm. a little bit on kinda, the old ones yeah on the old ones i'm and curious how the new ones I, are so i had those and i um i ended up selling those to a buddy of mine um 
here locally, a good buddy of mine, he bought them. And I had switched to the Koas at that point. And um, I had a mixed review on the Koas. I, I do like them for – I didn't like them for the super long-range stuff because they were 30 power, 32 versus um, – 40. Th- versus 40. Um, I liked them for their light gathering – but I just felt like a lot of the stuff I hunt in Nevada is really long-range glassing. And I just didn't feel like I, – I, I started missing the, the the same exact spots I was glassing. I started missing the 40s. I went back, switched, and, and uh, got a pair of the new HD 40s from a buddy of mine and looked at them. And then I sold my Koas at that point and uh, went back to the Dr. 40, the new HD ones. And I had no idea how much better they'd improved over the old ones until I went and – and uh, went with my buddy who had bought my old pair. And it's night and day, the difference between those two. They've got a much bigger ocular in the front now. Even when you take the eye cups off, they're bigger. Do you still cut the rubber off? Or? I do. Okay, so you cut do. Cut the rubber off. And, um, but I do, I, what I do is take them off and cut them with an X-Acto knife. I don't get rid of the rubber because right. if you get rid of it entirely and unscrew it. It's then just a lens. They're not, yeah, they're not protected. So I take it off and cut them with an X-Acto. But even without that, I did it for a year without that in and then somebody else cut it, and I looked, and I'm not even sure if I really gained that. It wasn't like before when I cut them off, and it right. was like, I can't believe these are the same vinyls. It didn't seem to make it, – it did make a little difference, but it, it wasn't as much. So I'm currently using the Dr. 40 wide angles, and um, and I just like them. They're they're 8.8 pounds. They're, you know, they're a pound heavier than what you're using. Um, I've just always liked them because they're all enclosed, but, you know, they're not waterproof, you know, and so – Again, I hunt Arizona, Nevada. We don't have a whole lot of moisture, and it, yeah. especially during the times of year when we're hunting, it isn't as it just doesn't. And, spe- and if there is real bad weather and snow and rain, you're not really glassing long range anyway because you don't have the visibility. So I just don't use them when it's right. really like the kind of conditions. But I think they're—I want to say they're eight point eight, and the field of view seems to be even better than it was before, quite a bit. So I—I've been curious. I haven't looked at the new doctors, um, but I've heard that the new Doctor HDs are better than the old old ones and i really liked the old 40s uh, i did too and i didn't realize what there was something out there yeah. and i had a hard time leaving them I, I used them for i think i had one of the first two pairs that ever came into the country years and years ago and i i loved them and i had them forever and they were scratched up coatings wore off them and i still loved them and yeah. but when i switched when i looked back to the hds and compared them side it, it blew me away i really liked the koas when i switched i had the doctors and then i bought the koas and mm-hmm. and then i ended up selling the doctors i really liked the koas um, one of the things as far as uh, there were several factors that made me looking for something else. One is weight. Mm-hmm. The older I get just from a weight standpoint, um, the edge to edge clarity comparing the old doctors with the COAs. I thought the COAs were for definitely sure a step ones. up. hundred percent. I'm curious. So you think edge to edge clarity, um, are they equal? I would still say to this, if, if you were only looking at that, edge-to-edge edge is I, – I would say the Koa still have an advantage on the edge-to-edge. Edge, yeah. But not like before. Not it's, like before. It, uh, let's say 5% okay. total. But I feel like what I was giving up with that extra, you know, 35% more magnification. 30% more magnification. Right. You know, and it's not like – like the old – the original Dr. 40s that – because of the way the eye cups were and how small the oculars were, you, I mean, you could move and get the field of view, but yeah. you weren't really getting it. The new ones are not like that. But I would still say the Koas, because they also have a bigger – and they've got a bigger objective, don't they, on yeah. the front? They're at 85? Uh, well, no, I think there's they're, 
I believe the old or the Koas are 32 by 82. I think the old doctors were 40 by 80. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the new ones are. They're also an 80. 80. Yeah. But so what the two millimeter. What blew me away was the front ocular. It's it, it looks like it's twice as big. Yeah. You know, as far that as makes a huge difference because mm-hmm. I remember the old doctors, it being pretty small. And I remember it being pretty finicky side to side. Like the centers were perfect, clear, mm-hmm. and really good. But when I did get the Koas, um, and I, darn, I had them and we were using them and I started using the Koas. I just found that like my eyes could swim around edge to edge a little bit easier in the Koas. So I said the detractors of the Koas were the fact of the, um, the weight, weight. but agree. I'll tell you the other factor for me is, is angled eyepiece. Um, y- you know, I just felt, you know, sitting for a long period of time and looking down, you know, I like not. I like looking through straight as opposed to looking through an, an angled. And I, I just think it's so much of the personal preference because that was the thing I thought I would hate was the angled eyepieces on the Koas, and that was the one thing that I ended up really liking. I probably it was the weight I didn't like and the less magnification things. And I think that. I have a neck issue, and I think it's from so many hours of. So you actually my, think the koas are better that was for the that? Only thing I, if that was the one thing that I had the hardest time letting. Like I look back on now, like when I used, especially in Nevada, Arizona's a, a lot more getting up and glassing down. Nevada's a lot of glassing down going up. So the straight eyepieces, you're lifting your chin and you're tilting back, and I was getting nerve damage in my uh, in my neck. And when I went to the koas. And I started tilting down to look. I thought, wow. And I started noticing my neck pain went away. But like I said, I just, when I looked at all the different options, I ended up going back to the doctors because I wanted that extra power. I thought the clarity is the same. I don't see a difference in the clarity anymore. I did on the old ones. Yeah. You know, I would say 15% clearer. Yeah. The old doctor to the co-host, but now I don't see a difference with the new clarity on the new HDs. I do kind of, ironically, the one thing I didn't like I wish I had now, which was the angle eyepiece, but they don't make it. So, but other than that, I just, and the weight, the weight, half the weight, you know. Okay. We've talked about, um, optics. Um, one question, last question I have, and then we're going to get into this, um, restricted, uh, deer draw angled versus straight on your spotting scope. And since you're using 40 power doctors, do you carry a spotting scope still or not? And if you do, do you like a straight spotting scope or angled and why? I don't carry a spotting scope with the 40s. And the reason was is for my eyes personally, I know everybody's different, but for my eyes, when I carry a, a scope, and I'll make one exception, that new 90, is it the 95? From, yeah. That blew me away. Uh, one of my clients brought that this year, and that's the only scope where I've been able to look at an animal and compare it to my 40. And I don't mean for glassings. I don't think I could use it a glass with one eye. But as far as evaluating an animal, I could 100% see the forks better in that than I could on my 40. When I cranked it up to a higher magnification and the clarity on it, it blew me away. Yeah. But other than that, like all of the all of the other Swarovski, the, the normal Swarovski spines, because were the 60s, I guess they are. Yeah, 65, 85, and 95. Yeah. But on the other spine scopes, even though I can crank it up to 60 power, I'm using one eye. I lose my depth perception. And I also feel like when you crank it up to the maximum, the clarity wasn't there. So I was actually able to see. So I quit carrying a spine scope because I could always see it better with my both eyes on my 40s than I could. Even though it was slightly better magnification with one eye, I couldn't see as well as far as to determine if how 
a fork was sure. there or wasn't there. But like I said, when I did look through that Swarovski, the, the 95, yeah. it, it blew me away. Would you say if you were going to carry a spotting scope, straight or angled? For me, I would say the angled just because I didn't think I'd ever like Because of my neck, yeah. I think I would like the angled. Yeah, interesting. Okay, good stuff. Let's um, let's move on here to back to the guide draw. And there's basically four units uh, that you kind of focus on. And I kind of want you to go through each one and talk about the different hunts maybe in that unit, the timing of the hunts, and kind of how each hunt is. Um, and we're going to go through each one of them. So let's start with 241, 245. Or you can start wherever you yeah, want. Two forty. These are there's four different units, and then within the units they have different dates, early and late. Um, so like two forty one, the two forty five has one hunt, and it's uh, it's typically let's see, we got it right here, um, October fifth through October thirty first. So you know a little over a little over three weeks, three and a half weeks long, and. Uh, you know that's one that's considered one of the premium units in Nevada. Um, it's got lower densities of deer than say two thirty one or two twenty one or thirteen one thirty one. The other units, <clears throat> but it also has, um, in my opinion, probably the best bucks in the state are coming out of that unit. It's it, it would be kind of like the equivalent to Arizona's uh, maybe thirteen A. Not as not as glassable or it has a lot of thick in it, but it's got some great bucks in it, and it's. It's probably got the highest potential for trophy quality, but it's also got the highest potential for a bust. You know, it's lower densities, much a very difficult hunt, but it's one of the ones we put guys in for first choice. High risk, high reward. Exactly, a high risk, high reward. How do those hunt. season dates, October fifth to the thirty first, like what 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 are you dealing with in that? In the situation? beginning of the hunt, we're hunting bucks that we know about that haven't moved yet and that we found in the summertime, and then on the last part of it, you start to see some pre-rut and rut. And so at that point, it's kind of one of those things where if you go early, you're hunting a specific deer, but he's harder to find because it's more nocturnal. There's no rut. If you decide to go late, you're going to get more deer movement, but now you're, now the deer that you know about are gone and they're somewhere else. And now you're hunting does and looking for bucks that way. So, and they don't all move, but you know, I know that last year, uh, specifically last year, on the earlier part of that hunt, we were hunting specific deer and able to find deer we'd found in the summer and killed. And then on the late hunt, we were not able to turn those same bucks the last week, but we found different bucks. Found new bucks. You found new bucks. So, so October 5th through the 31st, this is 241, 245, the early hunt. Well, There's just, only just only one, one hunt, hunt. One hunt. Yeah. Um, but it's early. Uh, most of the bucks that you know about in the summer that you're hunting in the archery season are resident bucks that are right there and they're still there that October 5th. So it becomes a, we know the buck is here. All we got to do is put our eyes and find them. Right. Which like you said, like we talked before is sometimes easier said than done, but yeah. you're hunting a specific buck that is there. And, and, uh, so that's the advantage to going early. Um, that time of year though, it's a deserty unit. It can be hot. There could be not a lot of movement. So, um, the advantage to going later is you can get weather. They might start rutting. You're still hunting resident deer, but they're moving around more, um, which is a plus and a negative. Sometimes they get up and might go 10 miles to go rut somewhere totally different. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're hunting totally different deer and it's, uh, I would say it's probably 50, 50. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you structure that as far as do you do some hunts early and then do some hunts late and just yep. do? We usually do the first week on that hunt and the last week on that hunt. And so, some guys want to go late um, and some guys want to go early. And what if someone said, I want to do both? That's definitely an option. Um, it just depends on the draw and, and who else draws draw, and what's available. But in the, it, we can always work something. We've always in the past been able to work something out where someone wants to come early and then try it and know and then come again late as long as it the hard part of that is you have to secure you have to almost do that ahead of time yeah or else you're running the risk that we won't have an opening but if if a guy wants to say i want to book first and third week last week yeah we can absolutely do it yeah sometimes people will say i want to hunt the first week and if there's an availability at the end and then we just kind of wait and see and they're kind of on call if we get done early with another hunt we send somebody over and it's kind of a challenge trying to plan, and I'm sure a little bit of a nightmare trying to calculate that, but I was just curious. Most hunts, though, we have, you know, we have, we're in two or three different units, and I've got four or five guides that work for me over there, so usually it's not a problem, you know, and, and if somebody wants to come back, we've done that multiple times in the past, where if somebody didn't get one the first week, we'll call them up, and there's four days left in the season, and they'll come back, you know, if they're somewhere out west where they can drive and get there, or, you know, we I, I'm thinking back on last year, we had uh, we definitely had one person that didn't get one the first week and in the next unit, we're going to talk about two thirty one, And he, he, uh, flew back and rented a car and drove up on the last four. We were done early and he came in the last four or five days and ended up shooting a nice buck. Nice. So this two forty one, two forty five. what kind of terrain is it, uh, in general contrasting to the others? Like what, what style is it? Sagebrush? What? A lot of sagebrush, uh, Two, the, the it, it has everything. It comes from the Joshua Tree Desert down low, just really um, just no trees, all the way up to um, mountain ranges that have pine trees on them. So you have a little bit of everything in it. Um, the majority of the hunting has taken place in the the sage and juniper country, and some of the units, and then in the low desert. You know, a lot of the better, better bucks are taken out of that real low desert stuff in the low density areas. Has this two forty one to two forty five since you've been hunting for twenty two years? Has it just remained a really good unit, or have you seen it ebb and flow, or, or you know, where would you say it is in the, in, you know, in a I, you trend? You know, I think the last four and f- the last five or six years, even though we've been in a drought, have been some of the best antler growth years because we've had unbelievable timing. Rain. Yeah, timing. The rains have come in May, and in and, and uh, so I've seen the last four or five years. Um, in all the units in Nevada, some of the best antler growth I've ever seen, even though we're in a really bad drought and, uh, we've had great antler growth because the rains have come at the right time. So that's why we're so excited about this year with all the moisture they've had early. I think it's going to help with the groundwater situation, the springs. There's a lot of springs now that are dry that I've never seen dry that have been dry now for two years. So hopefully with all this, you know, all this snowpack and what some of those springs will come back. Okay, um, let's jump down to 231. Uh, 231 is a unit that uh, we probably take our most, we've probably done the most hunts in over the years. We spend a lot of time over there in the summer. Uh, we do a lot of archery hunts in that unit, and, you know, it's the same thing. We're hunting, we're hunting specific deer. Um, they're much easier to find in the archery season, but then they're harder to kill. So during this rifle hunt, you know, we so does like, it have an early, a middle, and a late too? Yeah, it, it's that that season is the same exact dates. This year they moved it back three days. It used to go from the fifth to the twenty eighth. 
This year they've moved it to the 31st, which is going to get it some rut at the back end. They rut a lot earlier in Nevada than they do here in Arizona. So, so is that last three days, adding that last three days in your mind, like a game changer for both this 241, 245, and this 231? Well, 241 has always been going right around then to Halloween. Okay. Um, but 231, I can't remember it going this late in a long time. So it's going to the 31st. So that is going to add three or four days to the back end where you will see some rutting activity. Um, and it's, again, it's going to be the same thing. You'll definitely see rut. It'll make the last week better. Um, I'm still not 100% convinced that the first week isn't the best just because you're going to be – you definitely that last week will not be hunting deer that we know about. We'll be So it's just does. random what you see. Yep, you'll be hunting does and, and deer that have moved on to that have – there'll be a lot of deer. By the end of that hunt, a lot of deer move into that area that are not even in that unit at the beginning of the hunt. So you're going to have some advantages because you're going to be hunting some deer that are rutting, but – the, dis- the only disadvantage would be that the deer we know about are no longer where they were when we knew about them in the summer. And the 231, uh, geographically, where where is it? That's, um, you know, 180 mile or 170 mile drive from Vegas. Um, it's kind of winds around. So by air, it's probably, I'm guessing, 80 to 100 miles north of Vegas. It's at uh, near Pioche. Okay. Pioche is the main town in that unit on the south end of the unit. Okay. And does this border Utah? It does. Okay. Both those. 241 to 245 borders Utah on the eastern uh, boundary, and 231 borders Utah okay. to the east. Which one of these units is north or south of each other? Uh, 241 to 245 is the most southern unit that we hunt. Okay. Then we go north to 231. And yeah. um, Does that moving north make them rut sooner or anything or not really? I haven't noticed a difference over there because we're only talking – you know, they, they bounder each other. So you're only talking 30 miles, 20, 30 miles by air. I haven't noticed a difference as far as that. On these two particular hunts that you've mentioned so far, which one has more tags or is there one hunt that, you know, you see way less people? Uh, I would say you see way less people in 241 to 245, less tags, harder to draw. 231 has more hunters, but we don't really, <clears throat> in the past, I don't, you know, last year, I think if you talk to the guys we hunted with last year, we don't really see a, you know, other than there's a unit, the next unit we're going to talk about, you do see hunters because it's a migration hunt and everybody's hunting a big valley and you see a lot of deer and a lot of hunters. But 231, we don't, I think last year on that hunt, we didn't really run across a lot of hunters. I'm not really hunting the popular parts of the unit. So um, I would say in 231, at least five of the seven days of our hunt last year, we didn't see a hunter. You know, and and then there were parts of the unit we did go and hunt one buck that was in a place that people went to, and when we were there, we saw four or five different you know vehicles in the area hunting. So, but for the most part, we're not running into a lot of people. In two forty one last year, the seven days I was in there, I didn't I saw one hunter in seven days. So, on both these units you've mentioned here, two forty one, two forty five, and two thirty one, there are elk in these units also, correct? That is correct. And so. Is there any hunts going on at that same time, or is it just deer hunts? Um, like, is there any conflict? Yeah, of- there is. In 231, I believe there's a – I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm pretty sure there is. A, uh, 241, I not enough – I don't notice it if there is. I've never seen any elk hunters out there during that deer hunt. And 231, I want to say there is a um, – I want to say there's a cow elk hunt going on at some point. But uh, – it. It hasn't really ever been. Yeah, in fact, I know there is. There's a there is a cow hunt or a muzzleloader. It's a muzzleloader, either a muzzleloader cow or a muzzleloader bull hunt goes on at some point during that deer hunt. Okay. 
the one thing I've gotten out of this conversation, uh, or one of the things, is this 231 with these a little bit later dates, three days. Three days can a lot of times make a huge difference. Yeah, I, I think I think that it's definitely going to help that last week, you know. Um, so that's something that there's a few different people this year that I suggested apply for that that I didn't last year that were wanting to do a rut hunt. And uh, it's not really a true rut hunt, but they will. Be. The, the actual rut hunts are the other two units that we're going to talk about next. And they start on the 31st and go till one goes till the 5th and one goes till the 8th, which they moved it back an extra two days. It used to go till the 6th. They moved it to the 8th. So that could be a big difference. Those, those are going to be a big difference. But we always start those hunts on the 31st, and we always see a lot of rutting on that first couple, you know, for right off the bat on those hunts. So if you use the reason 231 should see some running at the end of that hunt this year. Okay. Um, so 231, the dates, uh, are October 5th through the 31st. And then the next unit that we're going to talk about is 221, 223. And there's three hunts there, right? Yeah. They have an early, a mid and a late. Um, this is something we were, we were talking about the, on the early hunt last year. We, um, it's this, this is a unit that a lot of, that, is a lot easier to draw as long as you're not putting in for the late hunt. The late hunt is the hardest, I believe, if not the hardest, one of the top two or three hardest tags to draw is that unit for the late rut hunt, which is October 31st through November 8th. And is this, in essence, is 221, 223, in essence, the 13B of Nevada? In other words, like the best or do they not really have a definitive best? They don't. I don't think they have a definitive best. I think these are the top three or four. I would say more two forty one to two forty five is would be the thirteen B or thirteen A. Okay. Um, it's not the it's not the same quality as thirteen B. It's um, but it's their version of it. You right. know, it's it's the best quality of Nevada. Right. Um, I mean, I've hunted both those, and it, it doesn't. You know, it's. I, I hate saying that because I don't want to say it's not good. It's the. It's if you're trying to hunt Nevada, it's the best there is, but. It, just like, you know, I think there's certain places like the, I mean, the, the 13B or, the, you know, the Strip in Arizona or the Henry's in, in Utah. And, uh, but, you know, the 221, 223 is the most difficult because of that rut tag. Everybody wants that week in the rut, but there's one tag available for it, you right. know. And um, what's interesting is that it's that exact same unit. You can apply to hunt three weeks earlier, and it's one of the easier draws. You know, and you're still hunting the same bucks, same. It's just harder, you know. Yeah, I see here the dates are October 5th through the 16th. Yep. So you get a shorter window, Mm -hmm. and you're hunting in a great spot, but they're not really good dates. But if you know about bucks that aren't too, if you know about bucks, or just anytime you're putting yourself in the field, where in an area that has big, some of the biggest bucks in the last, the, the biggest buck to come out of Nevada last year was killed out of 220. Last year on the archery hunt, um, a resident deer out of that unit. Um, I believe the auction tag last year was out of that unit. Several years, the biggest auction tag buck to come out of Nevada in the last 20 years um, that I know of came out of that unit also. So it's got big bucks. It's just the dates aren't the premium dates. So, but if a guy's willing to take a chance and still want to go into an area where there's a chance at a really big buck, that's and that's one that's the better. That's by far the easiest to draw, not in Nevada, of the five right. six choices we do. Right. And then the next one is the October 17th to the October 30th, which is the mid-hunt. They call that the mid-hunt, and then those odds drop down to, um, you know, very similar to all the other ones, very difficult dates. 
and uh, and we and I would what we're really doing for our choices are two forty one to two forty five, and then we're doing two twenty one to two twenty three late, and then we're doing uh, one thirty one to one thirty four late, and then we're coming back to two thirty one. And then as a fifth choice, if people want to, we're putting them in for the 221 to 223 early hunt where it's an easier draw. And again, it's not an easy draw. Right. It's just easier than the other Better ones. Better odds, yes. Yeah. So uh, you just mentioned something there that I think we ought to talk about. Uh, so you have five choices. Yeah, five choices, and they look at all five of them there. It's not like Arizona where they look at two and then you go back in the draw. They look at your first choice. If it's not available, they go to your second immediately. Then they go to your third, your fourth, and your fifth. So it doesn't hurt you to put – you might as well put in for the real difficult ones as your first So one. in essence, like you said before we started the podcast, there's a barrel and they throw ping pong balls in there and your number's on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, not literally, but yes. No, but yes. It, it, it just to, to make it simple – they throw it in a barrel. Yep. And someone that has 20 points, they square it, right? They square it. So they would have 400, so 400 balls in, in the, the And I may put in with no points, and I've got one ball. Right. But when they reach in to grab it, they could pull my ball up, and I've got my five choices. It's happened multiple times on the most difficult draw where we've had somebody with 20 points that didn't draw and somebody with one point that did draw. It's happened twice in the last five years on one of the most difficult draws out there. So, yeah, you definitely want to have points because the more balls you have, in a, you know, in theory, the more balls in the hopper, the better chance your ball gets picked. But one of the things that's nice about the draws is a true random draw. A guy can put in with zero points on his first time, and he can draw the hardest tag. And let's talk about that. To put in with you, and we're, we're going to cover the rest of the units here, but to put in with you, just to reiterate this, um, you, you don't charge the guide fee until they draw. Right. There's no, I don't do any deposits at all. It's just you apply. Once you draw the tag, then I contact you and then I send you a contract and then we do the deposit. At and to be clear, if someone applies with you in this restricted draw, they have to hunt with you right. or your That's guides. why there's not as, it's not as important to get a deposit. It's, right. The tag is only good hunting with me or one of my sub guides. Right. It says right on the tag that it's a restricted guided deer tag, and it has to be accompanied by a guide or the sub guides. Yep. Okay, uh, 221, 223 mid. I assume the early hunt's better than the mid, although the dates get later. I would assume the mid is kind of a little bit rougher because these guys have kind of mucked it around a little bit and it's still not late enough. That's how I feel about it personally, but it is tougher to draw. So that's why I don't, I, I haven't been applying people on the mid. I've been doing the early and the late okay. for my five choices. And, and the, then this late here is October 31st through November 8th. And that in years past has been ending on November 5th and 6th. And this year they moved it back to the 8th, which is as long late as I can ever remember it in 22 years. So those late. extra two or three days could be a game changer. I, yeah, it'll be huge. You're, you're, the rut just keeps getting harder and harder every day. So I think that'll be a huge difference. So with those dates of, um, with those dates, like from the very start, October 31st, it's game on, like yep. full on rut, like, or is it just getting? It's just getting started then, and by the eighth, they'll be going pretty pretty hard. Okay, and. The 223 late, what is the terrain in this 221, 223 in, 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 in this unit? Uh, it, it goes, it starts off, it's got, you know, you know, big mountains that are up in 10,000 feet and the pines, 
up high. But by the time that hunt rolls around, you're hunting the low country. It's more very deserty, high desert, I would call it. A lot of desert and sage, rocky country, Joshua trees, juniper trees, that kind of stuff. So on that early hunt, you could be hunting high, you could be hunting low. You could low. be hunting high could... or low. You could be hunting all the way up on top of the mountain where it's a 4,000-foot vertical climb to um, hunting down low. The deer are all over it. And then the mid-hunt could potentially be no man's land. Deer could be traveling in they're, transition they're, and, areas. And believe it or not, even on that early hunt, they're already migrating. Last year, they were. You're, we were seeing you know, 50 to 60 deer a day migrating a day by, even on the early hunt. It's just, it's not even about weather. Last year was beautiful weather. It was warm temperatures, but once that food source changes, they just start moving and you'll see them migrating by different deer every day. Okay. Uh, 131, 134, uh, there's also two hunts here, it looks like. There's an early and a late. Early is October 5th through October 20th. And the late is October 21st through November 5th. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you say about this hunt? That's uh, it's another one of our top. It's it's in our top three choices. The late hunt, that rut hunt, goes from I think we started on the 31st and go through November 5th. Um, you know, last year we shot a 32 inch wide buck on that on the first day, and he was rutting like crazy on the 31st and had 20 something does and and full on rut. I mean, shooting at him and he wouldn't move. You know, so. That that's a and then it went and the other buck we shot was also rutting really hard, and I was shot a really heavy big typical on probably the third, I think it was November third, and he was rutting so hard we were discussing about shooting him and he'd look at us and you know go back to rut the doe. So, wow. And uh, so yeah, the rut that year and it was funny you know the, those ruts sometimes that first week they're rutting really hard most years they are the year prior which was I guess 2015 season. It, for whatever reason, across the board, we didn't see nearly as much rut that year. Just kind of one of those fluke years. So, but it is a—it's also a real premium hunt. There's only one tag in it. If a guy's lucky enough to draw it, we've always had really good hunts on that one. Okay. Low low country also very tons and tons of deer. Um, not not very physical at all. Um, you're hunting more of that sage winter range type stuff. Out of all of these units. Uh, that we've talked about, which one is the the easiest terrain? The easiest terrain would probably be the the two late hunts in 221 to 223 and the early hunt in 221. Even though it does have a big mountain and you can go and hunt these mountains, there's also a lot of deer down low where it's very, very, very physically easy. And which one out of this is by far the most rugged? Um, Probably the most rugged would be... It's just a, there's parts of them. There's very rugged parts in 24. There's you know 241, and there's very rugged parts in that same hunt that I said is easy. You know, there's parts of that where you're hunting a wilderness and hiking in, and so I would say 221 to 223 is the easiest and the hardest okay. physically. Out of these units, which one in general has the most deer? Like, where would you see the most deer? Obviously, on the late hunts, you're probably going to see the most deer, but in general, like. Where is the higher all- densities are the, I think, 221 to 223 has a lot of deer. 231 has a lot of deer. They're all pretty high density with the exception of 241 to 245. Okay. And I think we said it before. If you apply in this restricted draw, you can't apply in the general draw, correct? For deer. Right. For deer. And the general draw that's coming out, uh, it 
parallels the same dates. Yeah, you're hunt, you're putting in for the same hunts. You'll hunt with the same people on the regular draw. Okay. The only dis, I mean, the only, the only difference is you'll have a tag that says it's a, a guided tag, meaning you have to be with your guide. Speaking of guides, that's a good segue to. Uh, you have some of the best guides in the business and you've been doing this yourself 22 years. Um, speak a little bit about your guides and what it's like to be able to know that you have your, 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 you're putting people that are putting their trust in you and you're putting it in their guides and your guides, I have to say, from an industry standard, have an incredible reputation. How does that, how does that play into your whole program? You know, it's funny. I, I've, for the first, I, I, this is my, this will be my 34th season. And in the first 15 to 20, I hardly didn't use anybody. I mean, one or two people helped me and maybe, maybe three, I don't know, but not nothing full time or that kind of stuff. I'd have guys help me here and there. And, and, um, in just in the last three years, um, a, a good client of mine and a good friend of mine, in fact, he's the father of the son in that story that shot that big buck. And he sat me down and, and really convinced me that I have to not be a control freak and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, ha, you know, and, and start doing some trips where I'm not in the camp, you know, and, uh, and it's, I have, in my opinion, I just have the best guides there are there, you know, Paul Stewart's been around forever, you know, Paul and, Paul used to be a big competitor of mine, you know, for years. And then he went to work for me and, and just cause I think he was tired of the whole administrative part of it, you know, and, uh, I don't know exactly, but I got to believe he's been guiding. I know I've been doing it for 33 years and I think he's been doing it as long as I have. I don't know that for sure, but I can remember when I was starting out him being someone I was always competing with. So when you have guys like that, I don't even, it never even occurs to me that there's going to be a problem. You know, I know that if they don't kill a big buck, it's not going to be because Paul didn't try hard or Paul doesn't know what he's doing. And anybody that knows Paul that's been in the industry at all knows how good he is. And so I've got guys on that scale that have been doing it forever. And then in the last couple of years, I've been convinced by my, my friend Louie that I needed to hire some younger, newer guys and, and, uh, and, you know, I've been blown away with how good they are. Cause you know, when we started out, it, it was, uh, in my mind, I've always had this, thank God they're only 21, 22. How could they be, you know, and it's just amazing with the equipment that's out there today and the knowledge they have. I mean, I learned stuff from my young guys that I, you know, just from a technical standpoint and it, you know, I just, they've got, they're so far ahead of where we were when we were 22 years old. It's, you know, it, you know, what I noticed too, is a lot of the young guys, a lot of the good young guys, they got the fire in their belly and you know, you know, as well as I do that that's, ha- that's more than half of it oh, to yeah. have the desire and the, the fire in their belly to want to do good. Uh, I think it's, um, cool to see some of the young guys, they want to make you happy. Oh yeah. And they want to make the client happy and they've, they're energized to go give it 110%. I mean, I, I, I know when I hunt around some of the younger guides, I get energized just seeing their energy. Yep. Granted, there's times maybe I have to rein them in a little bit and say, <laughs> all right, let's just sit here a little bit and let this thing unfold. You can't force every situation. Um, but youthful energy is something that's contagious, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, in the last two years, like I said, hiring these new guys, I – I was so stressed before it started, you know, having new, cause I've had the same people forever, you know, and, and they're all older. And, uh, and then 
I've hired some young guys the last couple of years, and I, I mean, I can't even think of any negative. I haven't, I haven't run into one situation with these two new guys that I'm thinking of that has been a negative. You know, the the clients like them. They they work really hard. I'm blown away with their ability at their age. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're better than us. I'm saying, yeah, I let's not give them that yet. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying I'm better than them. I'm just saying, but I was expecting. Gosh, this kid's only, yeah. you know. They're in their early twenties. There's no way they're gonna know all the stuff that they do. And I'm, I was blown away by how how good a job they've done there. And you know, the I've never had any kind of problems with it. The the clients that I've had have already been requesting them on the next trip. They want to hunt with them again. And and uh, so I I've been really happy, and it's made my job a lot easier. That you know, because now I don't have to be. Now I've been able to bounce around a little bit and go from one camp to another camp. And 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 I don't, it never occurs to me that they're not going to do a good job, right. you know, and you know, they may not kill a buck, but it's, I may not have killed a buck or right. you may not have killed yeah. a buck if we were there. It's just, but I know they're working really hard and I know they're trying their hardest and, and, uh, and I know they're really good at what they do. You've been doing this 34 years and you've seen every scenario under the sun and you've experienced highs and lows and ups and downs and everything there is with the guiding business. I get people asking me, young guys, uh, asking me a lot of questions, sending me questions about how do they become a guide? How do they become a better guide from someone as much experience as you? Like, what would you tell someone that's just starting out that's young? You know, whether it be advice, whether it be, you know, just what would you tell them? How, how do they be successful? I don't. I don't, mean, I don't know if I have the advice on how to be successful. I've had people talk to me about if they want to do it. It's got to be somebody that. It has to be something that you just love. People don't. It has to be something that you're very passionate about because it isn't all. People picture a guy. Oh, you just get to go hunting all the time, and you're not. It's not. It's different when you're going hunting on your own. There's no pressure. There, you're not taking somebody's money that waited 20 years to draw this tag, and so there is a lot of pressure that goes with guiding and it has to be somebody that really enjoys it. And, 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 uh, if it's not something that because of the seasons, you're working a lot of hours for six months. So it has to be something you're prepared to be gone a lot in a way there's trade-offs to it. Like I have a family and I, I feel like I'm a really extremely close with my family, even though I'm gone six months out of the year, because the trade-off is I'm with them six months out of the year, 24 seven, I get to go to all their practices. You know, yesterday I got to go to their tryouts for their soccer tournaments. And so, and, and I, and I come back every chance, my wife brings them over on weekends and I see them, but it has to be something you have to think through that. Are you going to be able to be around? You know, are you able to be away from home for that long? Or are you, you know, and for long extended period of time and the people that are like one person, I'm thinking of like this uh, young guy that works for me now, Jeff Rowe seems to just, it's like he can hunt. He went hunting with me all season and then our season's over and he's calling me and wanting to go deer hunting in the desert. You know, yeah. <laughs> I get the same thing. Like they want to go chase predators and they want, I'm like, yeah. good night. Just give it a break for a second. And that's what makes him good is he is extremely passionate about it. He, he loves hunting, you know, so it's gotta be somebody like that. I've had, I did have one person that, that, um, I was going to use and it didn't really work out. And I don't, I don't think they were that same passion about it. You know, it was more about wanting to be a guide yeah. than it was about, really enjoying it. So I make it, make sure it's something you really like and passionate about it and be prepared that it's not just hunting. It's you're not, everybody thinks it's going out hunting. It's not like when I go hunting with my buddies and friends, that's a lot of fun. There's no yeah. pressure. I could care less if it goes, but when you're taking a guy like you do sheep hunts, I can't even imagine 
the pressure to go with that because that's their one chance at it. And I, I don't – it's probably why I've never, ever wanted to get into it because I, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. You know, I can't, I'd probably never tell someone to pull the trigger because I'd be so scared. <laughs> but uh, so just make sure it's something you really like and, and put the time in. And, and uh, if, as long as you put the time in and, and get with somebody that, that you know in your area that – that's a guy that you respect that you can get in with the right person. Cause I think there's a lot of guides out. There's a lot of really good guides, as you know, and there's some that, that aren't as good and try to, you know who they are and yeah. try to get in and work for those types of people. I think one of the things with social media, it's real easy for young guys trying to get into it because they see the pictures, but they don't see all the work that goes into it. And I try and tell people it's going to be a lot of work more than you think. And success doesn't just happen overnight. And I think that's one thing I always try and tell people is like, it looks like a lot of fun and it is, but a lot of it's a grind and just know that it's not all roses. Like there's, like you said, on the outfitter side of it, lots of paperwork, lots of permits and forests and, you know, a lot of things to deal with, you know, deposits and dealing with a lot of stuff and having to be on your game scouting and doing all the different stuff. So um, you know, I think, I think you give good advice. Uh, I want to give you a chance here to, uh, tell people how they can find you and how they can contact you to put in for this restricted, uh, a deer draw in Nevada. Yeah. The best way, um, is to email me and then I can send you the forms that needs to be filled out. It doesn't take, there's one form. You just have to get it signed and notarized mail it back to me with a contact number. As soon as I get it, I call them and then we'll do the draw online. Um, they can do that by going to my website, which is muggy own rim outfitters.com. And that's just to be clear. That's M O G O L L O N rim R I M and then outfitters. outfitters with an S.com or it's easier just to Google my name, Greg G R E G last name, Krog K R O G H. And the first thing that'll come up is my website. Um, I, you can contact me through Instagram, which is just my name, Greg, with an underscore and then Krog. And you can direct message me and I can get you the information that way. Um, either one of those. And we still got, I think it's, what's today? The first? The first. So, yeah, we so have we've got nine, day, day, nine yeah, days. Ten days yeah. As long as I get that form back by the ninth, right. I can still get them in. Can you accept a... Uh, scanned and emailed form or does it have to be the original form it has to be it's supposed to be the original form okay. so but again when i send it to them they get it notarized if they worst case scenario even on the eighth they could overnight it to me the right ninth. but right. if they just send it priority mail it's not going to be a problem right right okay awesome um well it's been great uh picking your brain here i'm glad i came up and was able to do it face to face. It's great getting to see your bucks over here. I'm looking at a velvet buck uh, from Nevada that I think you shot with your bow, and then the Arizona strip buck there. Yep. Um, cool, cool buck, and then Pat's buck there, uh, a, a, a replica. replica. Yeah, and um, it's just uh, cool seeing these big deer. And I want to congratulate you on the success that you've had. Uh, with your business uh, and also some of your personal hunts. And it's just nice to be able to come and talk to someone that has as much experience as you. And I think the listeners can take, you know, 34 years of experience. This will be my 34th year, okay. 33 okay. years. <laughs> That's fair enough. Thir- 33 years and, tw- you know, 20 plus in Nevada um, and be able to lean on your credibility and, and uh, 
it's it's nice to see a guy like you that's do have been doing it as long still as passionate are you ever bit as passionate now as you were the first day you you did it you know what i think i'm 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 probably one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet so i uh, i'm people make fun of me how competitive i am and my wife specifically and my friends <laughs> so yeah i'm i'm probably more you know, like I'm already looking like last year, I think it was one of our best years ever. And I'm, I can't wait till next year. I'm already stressed about next year thinking, how are we going to possibly have the kind of year we had last year? And I think that's what makes it so much fun is going back out and looking and, and, uh, but I, I think I'm every bit as driven now for sure. I would say I'm not like the example I use of Jeff when my season's over now after six months, I, I don't think lay I, up I in the weeds a little bit. Yeah. I don't <laughs> hang around the house and do fuzz of catch up with my kids and my wife and and uh but as far as when the hunting starts i'm every bit as competitive now as i ever was i don't feel like um if anything i feel like i'm more competitive than i was in the beginning you know in the beginning i'm you know 30 years ago i was a kid you know i was i think back then it was 16 17 years old i didn't i i didn't think about the things about what was gonna you know if you didn't have a good this year what was that gonna mean next year you know yeah. i just was out I mean, I, I enjoyed hunting and I loved it and it was fun, but I didn't. Now I look at it as a business where I have to, if we don't produce this year, we're not going to have people next year. So right. you fight I, for every single client you get. And yeah. And there's so many new people out there now. I mean, you've been in the industry. It seemed like everybody's a guide. There's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of people have a lot of choices on who to go with. So yeah. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm more competitive and more driven now than I ever have been. And I'm really excited about the future with some of these young guys we have. And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, I definitely don't think I've, I don't think I've uh, backed off any in the last years. Do you still get as excited looking at a big deer as you did? Do you think you're ever a bit as excited as you were, even though you've killed a bunch of big deer? I think I'm more. I, we were just, just a couple of weeks ago, Adam Foss was over here, and we have video of, and he made a copy of it on his phone because he's going to use something to embarrass me with it, of my reaction walking up on a deer. I mean, I, I'm probably more, my guides make fun of me because, you know, if you look at Jeff, Jeff's the opposite. Jeff's that young, Jeff's this young kid. And I sent him on a lot of the stocks this year because he is so calm, calm. and I'm not like that. People make fun of me. I can <laughs> high strung. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, I, I had the opposite. When someone shoots up, Jeff will call me up and say, you know, I'll be watching the whole thing, the scope, and I can hear the shot and I can't see the buck cause he's behind a tree and he'll call me on the radio in this monotone voice that, yeah, go ahead and come around here on the bottom and the, we can get the quad down here, the bucks down here in the draw. I'd be losing my mind. He'd have yeah. heard me yelling from there if I wasn't <laughs> there, you know. And I'm the opposite. I think it's because over years, the more you hunt them and the the more you get to appreciate these big bucks. And I, I think I'm more excited now when I see a big buck than I was then because then I didn't realize what a big deal it was in the yeah. beginning. And for I mean, me, it's, it's so rewarding watching them and then putting your hands on them. Oh. I I just love that anticipation of getting up there and getting your hands on them and just looking at them because, you know, I enjoy them so much. I'm sure like you do, it's just getting your hands on them is everything. Oh, and, and, and just, you know, some of these bucks, the amount of time you put into them, I can, there was a buck, you know, a buck we killed a year ago that between me and Jason, I think we had, between the two of us, we had 50 or 60 days of, looking at him before we finally ended up getting him. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's why I think it's exciting, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I like those gimmies when you walk around a tree and there's one standing there and it, it happens yeah. every now and again, but I don't appreciate those as much as the ones that we've been hunting and following the whole time, you yeah. know, and, and, 
you know, I would say 95% of the bucks we kill are bucks that we know about other than the rut hunts, you know, yeah. but all those other bucks are bucks we've hunted and been hunting for sometimes years and that we finally get to get them. And yeah. so I think it makes it more rewarding that way. And, but like I said, I'll take it the other way too. And deer for sure. out for the first time. For sure, buddy. Thanks uh, for spending time. Well, thanks and, for coming uh, up. I yeah. enjoyed talking with you. Sounds good.